0: The fancy phrase for this would be shock hysteresis and I say that in honor of Olivier Blanchard who uh, was with us earlier and this week he and Lawrence summer with pathbreaking research on the effect of the duration of unemployment over time but nowhere in the research at least have I ever would could I ever suggests that we've seen the abruptness that we see now. The abruptness is seen in the market. A weight to the tape. The tape has been green, red, green. Right now, some red on the uh, screen with the VIX uh, 49.77, and yields come in in the 10- and 30-year space. With us now, I really am pleased that Jeffrey Rosenberg could find time to join us today. He is with BlackRock, and he does a number of things over there, but mostly he writes acute summaries of the fixed income space. So we're gonna touch on jobs here a little bit, but then I really wanna get to a discussion of what we've got in fixed income now. we do this, we're thrilled to tell you without commercial interruption to the top of the hour. Jeff, thank you so much for being uh, with us. We are seeing economists pull out their duration of this slowdown and the duration of slogging recovery. Uh, The V-shaped recovery seems to have disappeared in the last 48 hours. How do you fold that into fixed incomes? What does it mean, for example, for the benchmark 10-year yield?
1: Well, you know, what we're debating is, is you know, what is the, the pace? What is the shape of the recovery? For the 10-year yield, however, um, it, it may be less about that. And what we've seen here is just a historic structural change in the relationship between the Federal Reserve and fiscal policy we are now operating in a different structural environment. Monetary policy is in the control of the fiscal authority. This is akin to wartime finance because we are fighting a war. We're fighting a war against the pandemic. And so when you think about how interest rates move, um, you really have to stop thinking about well, what is the shape of the economy and what is the outlook for inflation? Because there's something much, much more important that a lot of these headlines you've seen the Fed, for example, this week, change the uh, regula- regulations around the supplementary leverage ratio. This is all about securing the interest rate that the government will pay to fund the massive fiscal policy response that we've seen uh, to fight the pandemic. And so interest rates are going to be much more about fiscal policy than they are about monetary policy, the shape of the economic recovery, and the Fed reacting to the shape of the economic recovery, because it's going to be a long time, as, as Diane was saying, it's going to be a long time before you know, consumer behavior and confidence comes back. But it's also going to be a long time before we get back to the pre-crisis setting of monetary policy and interest rates.
2: So let's talk about the monetary policy currently underway. It is uh, off the charts. I'm looking right now at the balance sheet growth for the Federal Reserve, and it blows me away. I mean, in in one week, $600 billion expansion in the balance sheet, more than a trillion dollars added to the Federal Reserve's holdings of assets in two weeks. And I'm wondering, we're looking at a $5.8 trillion balance sheet. On the other side of this, what will the Federal Reserve look like considering that it is expanding its power and its scope well beyond its historical role into fiscal stimulus? Well,
1: again, I I think we've got to be careful about um, history here and which history we're comparing to because the the operative history to compare is not the the one we experienced. That's the modern Fed. The post-1951 Fed Treasury Accord establishes modern Fed, independence of monetary policy. But again, if we take the analogy to we're at war against the pandemic and we've just shifted the structure into wartime finance, then the better historical analog is what did the Fed, what did its balance sheet look like during World War II? And what we saw during that time period was explicit pegging of interest rates, three eighths on the yeah. bills, two and a half on the 30-year, and the subordination of the Federal Reserve institutions to the needs of the fiscal policy, in that case, of course, fighting the war effort. Here, very similar, fighting the war effort in terms of providing the funding for these massive amounts of stimulus. Right. And the balance sheet expansion that you're talking about, that, that, that barely scratches the surface well, because we have the Main Street business lending facility still to come. The funding of it, the $454 billion, but you leverage that up up to 10 times and you're talking about nearly an additional expansion of $5 right. trillion, and the Federal Reserve providing that funding into the real economy.
0: Beautifully explained. Jeffrey Rosenberg with us at BlackRock, folks. And at this time with the jobs report, we have to turn a little bit to a discussion for Global Wall Street. We'll try to keep it in English Uh, for all of you out there not familiar with some of these arcane phrases. Jeff Rosenberg, I thought Ben Emmons uh, was just brilliant yesterday writing a note on CMBS. The idea that millions can't pay their rent, landlords are left hanging, and all of a sudden it redounds over into commercial real estate. And mortgage securitized uh, ideas, CLOs, RMBs, and stuff like that. How emergent is this on a Friday morning across America? Is there really going to be a collapsing in securitized instruments like we saw in 2008 and
1: 2009? So, so there's there are differences in kind, and and what we saw already what what we saw in the fixed income markets in march is kind of the first wave of the impact of the pandemic that was a liquidity orientation that was a liquidity source of market drops in prices and very simply quickly what happened was you had this massive demand for liquidity from the real economy into the financial economy as a result of the sudden stop in the economy at a size that the financial economy was never equipped to ever uh, fulfill. The squeezing from the real economy of that liquidity out of the financial economy then pivoted back and squeezed financial market liquidity, and you saw some large drops. Okay, so now the Federal Reserve intervenes. It plugs the hole of that liquidity with its balance sheet. That's where we are today. Your question is now, well, where do we go from here when you look at the fundamentals of the daisy chain of the forbearances. Where does it stop, right? And where it stops is at the investor, at the holdings, at the bond level, at the securitizations. And so this is now what we're considering, but it's about a temporary halt to payments as a result of the sudden stop. And so the difference in kind relative to 2008-2009 is that 2008-2009 was about a fundamental collapse in the value of the underlying property right. now these properties might collapse fundamentally if there's a permanence to the halting of those payments and certainly in some sectors of the economy the structural changes that the pandemic brings changes in how we behave may render some of those securities valuations and cash flows permanently impaired. But the larger, broader issue here is this is a temporary stop. And what we're trying to finance and that earlier program that I just highlighted up to about four and a half, five trillion dollars of lending capacity from the Federal Reserve may be needed to to be called upon or maybe even additional forms. There's legislation and discussion about how do you handle other areas of the securitization, the mortgage market? How do we fund the temporary stop of these forbearances all leads to back on the federal fisc to provide that bridge.
2: Jeff, just by everything that I've read, the mortgage market is in much better shape heading into this and is not being fundamentally threatened, as you're saying, in the same kind of way as it was in 2007, 2008, and 2009. The corporate debt market, however, is. And I would argue that the leverage ratios in companies have reached levels that do exceed historical precedents, and we are currently seeing the fastest pace of downgrades by credit rating agencies in records going back to 2002, and you're expecting default rates up to 9% and beyond uh, with the rating agencies downgrading their expectations going forward on a daily basis. How big of a hit is that going to be to the corporate credit sector, regardless of any Fed backstop?
1: Yeah, I, and, I, and again, let uh, I wanna, I'll want frame my answer in those two phases. The first phase of what we've seen has been primarily liquidity phase. And you've seen the, the, the primary market credit facility, the secondary market credit facility help to stabilize the market. But then you move from liquidity to solvency, from liquidity concerns to fundamental credit concerns. And so as we roll through to the earlier questions to Diane, what does the recession look like? What is the depth and the duration? Is it B? Is it U? Is it flat bottom? Now you're talking about real fundamental economic impact to which the Federal Reserve is not really uh, designed and intended to solve those issues. And you came in, as you're highlighting, you came into this crisis with greater vulnerability because the debt stocks, not so much historically unprecedented, but we're running at kind of very late cycle Extended level of indebtedness, primarily because the the burden of that debt, the interest rate burden was so low. But the interest rate burden is high when you have an environment of zero cash flow. So it's really about how quickly do the cash flows of the economy come back online. And certainly there's going to be an elevated level where the most vulnerable, smaller companies, less financial flexibility, or the areas in the sectors of the market that are structurally impaired. Uh, see those restructurings in default.
0: Jeffrey Rosenberg, thank you so much to BlackRock. Greatly appreciated today in fixed income. <music> Ellen Zappa returns to us with Morgan Stanley uh, today. Ellen, what did you glean from the report? The report is so much more than five or six numbers. Clearly, a shock with 700,000 uh, non-farm payroll loss. But what was the other data But that you saw beneath the headline data?
3: Yeah, so I think. Uh... You know, this is a time, Tom, when you get these numbers right that you want to grandstand. And if ever there was a time that it's inappropriate to grandstand, it's now. So we had an estimate of minus seven hundred thousand, uh, and the You're underlying off. details are that this <laughs> this had—I know I was one thousand off. Um, the uh, the underlying details are that this this does not even capture the jobless claims that began jumping by the millions. Right? That is for the April survey period for the April report. So how did we get this number right, and and think that it was still going to be so deeply negative? It's about hiring. So we always, uh, we often forget the other side of this. It's net job gains. How many were separated from employment? How many were hired? Uh, And it's the drop in hiring that drove this number. So think about it. March comes around. Things are highly uncertain. You have 100 open positions at your company and you say, let's hold off on filling those positions. That gets counted in these numbers. And you can imagine that that no one would have been hiring uh, given the backdrop in March and how uncertain it was. So that's, I think, an important point because it means in April we'll start drawing in not just a drop in hiring but the firings. And so that's how you're going to get expectations for uh, the job loss to be in the millions. It will make this minus 700,000 look like small potatoes it's going to be on average out go
2: ahead well it's going to be it's going to be brutal going forward and we know this by all by all accounts and i just want to focus on the other side of this and you were saying you do expect the recovery to take less time than back following the 2008 2009 crisis how how realistic is that given the hit to this consumer psychology to the idea of feeling like your reality has been ripped out from under you. I mean, could that prolong things to the same type of length that we saw heading out of the last crisis?
4: Yeah,
3: so it's an, it's, it's a, a really fair question. And uh, the answer is that we really don't know. And so from here, the modeling takes over um, and tells you that that as the economy gets back on track, Uh, We're going to have millions in businesses that are just lost that go under. But to the extent that we do start to poke our heads outdoors, and activity does very slowly begin to pick up, that we slowly start to bring that unemployment rate down. Uh, How slowly it comes down will be the question of how strong is demand. So one question is maybe households are out there spending again, Um, But the patterns have shifted, and that's where I think there will be a significant amount of behavioral economics that will will go into the study of this.
0: I, I totally get it. And, you know, frankly, I'm optimistic, Ellen, that we could see a redounding rebound when we're done with this virus. And let's be sure, folks, in the tragedy that we see here in New York City, we're going to be done with this virus at some point. Ellen, you're completely wired in at Morgan Stanley, including with James Gorman, on the policy prescriptions right now. You know, John Farrell is going to talk to Lawrence Kudlow here in 35, 40 minutes or whatever. And, you know, he's going to say the usual drill. How urgent is it for Washington to shift from the institutionalized response to the get the money in their hands now response or even say there's a national rent forbearance, mortgage forbearance. Everybody's just going to wait for X number of weeks or months.
3: So I think, Tom, I think that's where we're headed. I mean, I think those conversations are already being had uh, in terms of, you know, monetary and fiscal policy acting in concert. We've never seen this before. So acting in tandem, supporting each other, you know, this main street lending program from the fed that we're waiting for details on that is meant to complement the small business administration loan program. Uh, you know, don't be surprised if the Fed also goes for something like a loan holiday program. You know, these are things that can be broadly, uh, uh, have broad buy-in from small businesses and from households in order to help. Be sure that when we come out of this, that those that went into this with good credit don't then have their credit ruined during this time, which would then lengthen the the recovery, and it would start to look like something of a deleveraging I do believe that in the future, that what we've learned from this is that in the future, monetary policy and fiscal policy acting in concert will now most likely be woven into the fabric of of response, crisis response. And so I I do think that this does set a precedent uh, for future downturns, and that's important.
2: We're speaking with Ellen Zentner, Managing Director, Chief U.S. Economist at Morgan Stanley, who has nailed the jobless claims calls and nailed what we were expecting to see today. One of the very few who has consistently gotten it right. And Ellen, I want to continue with the idea that you were talking about, that the economy coming out of this will look different than the one coming in, and that behavioral economics will play a role in this. Can you just humor us and give us a sense of how you expect certain industries to shift? What some of the benefits beneficiaries may be of this
4: well I think some of the
3: things that we've been um, thinking about is you know work from home arrangements so businesses are probably going to have to revisit their business continuity plans and have some sort of rolling work from home arrangements or will be very slow to bring work uh, work from home back into the office and have a greater share of permanent work from home now what does that mean for business centers Uh, Do we get, uh, you know, a a glut of office space uh, in, say, a a midtown Manhattan uh, and other business concentration centers? Will we have enough services uh, in more residential areas if more people are working from home going forward? So I think those are just some of the just a few of the shifts that we're thinking about. What happens when people that never ordered delivery services uh, and particularly for food from full service restaurants before until now, uh, and now that they've tried it, they want to keep doing that. Or they mm-hmm. used to go into the, the grocery store, now they're having their groceries delivered, and decide that they actually really like that. Yeah. So in some ways it would L- accelerate some of those trends that have already been in place.
0: Ellen, we look forward to your weekend report. Ellen Zetner with Morgan Stanley. Just extraordinary work. I can't convey folks how difficult it is to game any non-farm payroll uh, statistic. <laughs>
5: For the White is view on the jobs report, we're joined live on Bloomberg TV and on Bloomberg Radio from the White House National Economic Council Director, Larry Kudlow. Larry, fantastic to have you with us. I just want to set the stage for our audience so they understand where you and I are going in the next couple of minutes. We do have some technical difficulties, which means there will be a little bit of a delay so that you and I need to be a little bit careful about treading on each other. Let's start with the payrolls report and reflect on the huge plan that Washington pushed through last week. Larry, the numbers are dreadful, but this is a mandated stay-at-home government push, and we're trying to offset that with some big, big initiatives. And one of them is some help for small businesses with small business loans, and they're set to go forward, be activated today. For our audience, Larry, some much-needed clarity is needed, because it's unclear to us which banks are ready to deliver those loans Today. Larry, do you have some clarity on that? Do you have a list of banks that are ready to do those loans as soon as today?
6: Uh, Well, I do my best, Jonathan. Thank you, by the way. Um, In terms of the banks, I want to get to the broader subject also, but on the bank point, uh, today is the first day for applications and any federally deposit, any federally insured depository institution is eligible now there's also a whole group a very significant group of sba certified lenders but any fdic uh, bank any federally insured credit union uh, farm credit institution all of those are participating in this program which as you know uh, our loans to keep payrolls, all right? P- uh, payroll protection. I think this is one of the essential points of the economic assistance plan so we can get through this very difficult period uh, regarding the impact of the of the virus. So any bank, and it will be guaranteed, so the bank will have no problem. It's a 1% interest rate. Uh, it will be uh, payable um, in several months. Actually, you've got quite a while, at least six months. Um, yeah, six months. Loan payments will be deferred for six months no collateral or personal guarantees are required um it should be very effective but the thrust of it jonathan is to deal with the issue of unemployment, which of course has surfaced today, as we all expected. And payroll protection, 75% of the loan has to go to maintaining payrolls. And then the remainder of the loan will go to helping businesses meet their various expenses, rents, leases, uh, mortgage yeah. payments, and so forth and so on.
5: Larry, you're talking about eligibility. I'm talking about whether these banks are actually ready to deploy the cash. Are they ready as soon as today because the reports that we're seeing is that many banks are not and perhaps won't be for several weeks. Do you have a list of banks that are ready to lend out this money today? I know who's eligible to do the work, but who's actually doing it today?
6: Well, look, uh, we, I guess we have a different perspective. Uh, I'm not going to read you a list of banks. The list is gigantic, but they're ready to go. Uh, banks have been talking to the Treasury Department, uh, the SBA and Congress as this program was rolled out. So I, I don't see any barriers and roadblocks. Jonathan, there may be some, you know, small glitches as this thing goes out, but but they are ready. Secretary Mnuchin, you know, had a big presser yesterday on this very point. So I, I don't think that's going to be a problem. I mean, what matters here is that we've set aside $350 billion uh, for pay uh, Paycheck protection That's absolutely the key point And the hope is that most folks, or at least many folks, will stay affiliated, stay linked to their businesses during this very, very difficult uh, business interruption and economic contraction period from the virus. You want people, now you can't have a good job without a good business, so we've also given a payroll tax holiday to the business side and a number of other assistance plans. But on this one in particular, uh, I think the key is trying to keep the work force connected to the small business to the extent we can. And and I think it it, I think the bank assist. Look, uh, leading bankers, I'm not going to name names, but leading bankers were talking to Secretary Mnuchin and others of us uh, right up to the deadline yesterday. So I think they are ready to go.
5: Larry, let's talk about the pool of loans that's available, $350 billion. I understand that it's first come, first served. How easy will it be to go ahead and top up that program if we drain the 350 billion really quite quickly. There's gonna be massive demand for this. We know that people are gonna be working really, really hard. We have to understand there's gonna be some technical difficulties along the way to deploy that cash. But as it drops down, Larry, are you confident that we can top it up very quickly?
6: You know, I would say so, Jonathan. I don't want to get ahead of the story. Uh, I think there will be a, a very significant demand for it. I, I agree uh, with your point. Um, but right now, the trick, and this is true for all the assistance programs that we've run through, uh, $2.2 trillion worth, plus the Fed's lending programs, at least another 4000000000000 trillion. We're assisting roughly one-third of the entire economy right now. But uh, I don't want to get ahead. My, my reckoning is... Uh, if this program is uh, filled quickly, uh, we could probably get some kind of supplemental uh, assistance here through the Congress to, uh, to expand it, or we might find other ways and means. Uh, but uh, let's, let's see how we do first. That's the important thing. And, again, this is tied, as you well know, this is tied to the coronavirus story. Um, that story could be improving. Uh, I don't want to make any forecasts. I just listened to our health uh, specialists, our health experts. That story may be improving, hopefully, or prayerfully in the next uh, four to eight weeks. Uh, that's a possibility. Yeah. And so perhaps we won't have to oversubscribe these programs. Let's let's see what happens. It, it, it's a day at a time, week at a time, Jonathan.
5: Well, Larry, I want to keep this laser focused on economic policy. The likes of Tony Fauci doing a great job. Let's leave the health issues to them where it should be. For economic policy, you and I had an honest and open and frank conversation a month ago. And I recall that you said to me after the payrolls report that we didn't want to be thrown around $300 and $400 billion willy-nilly, including $1,200, $1,000 checks. Now we're handing out $1,200 checks. This has moved really quickly. And this is not a got-you moment, Larry. What I'm trying to understand here is whether the administration now understands that it's no longer about hoping for the best. It's preparing for the worst. And we need to prepare to do a whole lot more.
6: Well, look, um, that's fair enough. I mean, this story moved incredibly rapidly um, beginning in March, really. And uh, what started out as something that, you know, we thought would be smaller, uh, and we put up um, travel restrictions with China, and for a bit that looked okay, and then it exploded. The virus exploded. So. I and others here, Secretary Mnuchin, we had to change our point of view. And we realized as it rose exponentially, as the virus and its consequences rose exponentially, something, frankly, I thought nobody could foresee. But nonetheless, then, yes, we went into full gear. And move quickly through Congress uh, as best we could, and um, you know, starting with um, uh, covering sick leave for people who were hit by the virus or family members, and then going through this uh, economic assistance package of 2.2 $2 trillion to put as much help into the economy as we possibly could. Events moved rapidly, and we moved rapidly. Yeah. And I'll say, in a bipartisan sense, Congress moved rapidly.
5: They move quickly, maybe not quickly enough, and you'll appreciate that this story has just moved a whole lot faster. One thing the executive branch can do on its own, the White House can get together and do something about tariffs. We understand there is a consideration about announcing a 90-day deferral of tariff payments. Larry, where are we on that decision?
6: Uh, I don't think – I know I've read a lot about that. I don't expect that to be the case. Actually, we we never looked – We never looked in any serious way at rolling back tariffs. I mean, the deal with China is in place. Um, That's going to be implemented. USMCA is in place. Um, We looked a little bit at some uh, um most favored nation custom duties and we decided it was too complicated and um, it might give uh, send the wrong signals so um i i would not expect to see uh, any movement on tariffs right now i mean the issue here is besides the paycheck protection you know we've poured um Six hundred billion dollars apart from the business loans, six hundred billion dollars to individuals families, and that includes the unemployment gross up um, we We are giving checks to 175 million Americans. Let me repeat that. 175 million Americans. And on top of that, uh, leveraging from the Treasury's emergency fund, as you well know, the Federal Reserve has embarked on a number of lending programs, purchasing programs, and uh, broad-based industry assistance programs. So you've got monetary and fiscal policy working. It is the largest package in the history of the U.S. It's principally a main... Uh, Main Street package, middle class package. So I don't think we're going to, we're not going to change any of the tariff policies right now. I mean, frankly, the president cut from pretty good trade deals with China and USMCA, and when we return to prosperity, which I think will occur before this year is out, when we return, part of that return is going to be an export boom, in my judgment, uh, from these good trade deals so that we knock down unfair trading practices. But no, not now. There's not, no tariff pullback right
5: Well, Larry, let's not get far too far down the road. Let's focus on the right now. You say no tariff pullback right now. As you know, Gojo, which manufactures Purell, one of the inputs into the dispensers is an input from China that's subject to a 25% tariff. They've requested an exemption. USTR has declined. I'm trying to understand why. I just can't get my hands around why the administration would go forward and not exempt that request. You said it would send the wrong signal. Send the wrong signal to who?
6: Well, sending the wrong signal in terms of the president's trade policy is what we're concerned about. Jonathan, on specific matters like this, I don't want to rule anything in or out. Um, you have to talk to USTR and and see on on that particular point. Okay, we're trying to keep the flow going. You know, we've imported a lot of healthcare products from China and the rest of Asia. Uh, we've also exported some assistance. We're trying to work together in terms of the uh, unity of the nations around the world to fight this pandemic. So I, I don't want to get into specifics. You know, your question was really a broad-based question about tariff reduction, and what I'm saying is there's no change in those policies, whether it's 301s or the 232s on steel and so forth. Um, individual cases can be examined, and I will have to find out more about the particular matter you just raised. I- I- I'm not up to speed on that.
5: Well, I guess what I'm struggling with, Larry, is that you and I can identify areas where we can help American businesses with tariff exemptions. You're saying that you don't want to send the wrong signal on trade policy, but simultaneously saying that this health crisis is top of the priorities. Nothing tops it. But at the moment, aren't we putting bad signals, in your words, on trade ahead of alleviating some of the pain on American businesses?
6: No, I don't think so. I mean, I'm not sure what you're thinking about here. We we have some very good trade deals that, that the president completed before this pandemic broke out. And we want to maintain those trade deals. And regarding assistance or specific areas, you know, for example, ventilators or masks, um, we're looking at that one step at a time. I mean, we have imported a huge amount. We've had planes from Shanghai landing in key U.S. cities uh, to provide relief uh, to the medical people in the hospitals and so forth. So that's wide open. Uh, But that's a different matter than generic trade policy.
5: Well, Larry, hopefully we can get some more clarity on that in the next several weeks. Some clarity on Monday would be needed as well. OPEC Plus is holding a meeting. Is the U.S. providing a representative to take place in that meeting? Will they be participating in that meeting on Monday, Larry? Uh,
6: We are not members of OPEC.
5: OPEC Plus is open and inviting people from outside of the organization of OPEC for others to join. I'm wondering whether America will send a representative to have a conversation with the Saudis, with the other members of OPEC.
6: Well, let me uh, sort of pivot to what's actually happened. That is, first of all, the president... Uh, has been in touch on the phone uh, with uh, MBS in Saudi Arabia and uh, Putin in Russia. He's been on the phone several times. Um, Other people in the administration have been talking to their counterparts in both of those countries. So we do that independently in America's interest. We don't have to go to the OPEC meeting. Um, The president told me yesterday and he did subsequently tweet this out, that he believes that Russia and Saudi Arabia will move away from their quibbling or argument and will allow market forces to dominate. And instead of loading up... The markets that are already oversupplied uh, that they will pull back um, we will see how that turns out uh, president said that oil prices have gone up quite a bit seven or eight dollars since that statement I, I, I see no reason why these discussions with our with President Trump uh, and Putin and MBS will not bear fruit I think they will uh, I, I think flooding the market with oil on top of the pandemic which has crushed aggregate demand was a very 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 poor decision by both of those countries. Uh, But I think the president's negotiations will bear fruit.
5: Larry, will the United States be part of those production cuts?
6: Well, look, our oil, we don't dictate oil policies to our oil and gas sectors. Uh, they're smart businesses. Uh, the U.S. is still the number one uh, energy producer in the world, and we expect to remain so. Uh, we've taken a number of policies to, to uh, open the door and permit that to happen. Uh, we don't dictate. I, I think, as you would guess, uh, oil companies uh, seeing a decline in price are going to pull back in production. I think that's just common business sense. But we, we don't dictate those decisions. The government doesn't dictate those. Larry, decisions.
5: Just, a fa- just a final question for you, just to jump in. I know you- you've got to run. You've got a busy morning. I appreciate that. But as a final question, on a day when these small business loans are going out, on a day where Americans are struggling to pay the bills, can you communicate to a broader audience as to why there is such a big focus on the oil market and meeting with oil producers today?
6: Well, look, first of all, we have. uh, I'm looking forward to the meetings today with the oil producers. Uh, I myself have done a number of conference calls. Uh, with the oil and um, overall energy sectors you know we have let me just put this insert this the the degree of public and private government and private partnership here is unparalleled we have worked with every industry every industry and the president has you know seen them in person or done conference calls And so the rest of us have done conference calls. So that's point number one. Point number two, uh, energy is obviously a key part of our economy. It was a key part of the um, tremendous economic growth we had uh, in recent years before it was interrupted by this pandemic. Uh, So it's important. Motorists, uh, people who get heating fuel, gasoline prices, all that is very key parts of American life. So we always take an interest. But I will say this regarding any collusion attempts, uh, by other countries in and or out of OPEC that seem to be doing damage to American interests is something that uh, President Trump will get engaged with right away to protect the American economy. That's what we're doing here. This is you know we talk about paycheck protection for small businesses and um, to avoid layoffs. Yeah. Well, this is just general economic energy. I mean, we we have to stand up for American interests. That's what the president has done. Energy is a key part of the economy. So. To me, it's, um, you know, an American operation. That's what we're concerned about.
5: Larry, I hope you're safe and well. It's good to hear from you. Larry Cudlow there, National Economic Council Director.
0: There we are on oil and gas, folks. And it's good, I think, to tear apart the microeconomics. Edward Morris at Citigroup wrote a scathing note this morning, devolving down to teens oil and even single-digit oil. Joining us now is the acuity of Amrita Sen of energy aspects. Amrita, how do we get a demand destruction that gets us to teens Brent crude and even a wipeout that clears the market in the single digits? How do you even get there?
4: We are already there. Uh, We've got the bulk of uh, global crude prices in single digits. And, you know, we've been calling for $10 Brent for a while. And uh, the issue has been that futures prices have kind of held around 20 at the lows. But the differentials in the world, you know, there are crudes in the Permian that are trading at $3 today. Um, The fiscal market's already saying they're going to be full. Inventories are going to be full. So you have to scale back production right now, or at least from May onwards.
5: The crude curve is just fascinating to look at, and for our listeners worldwide on radio, I'll give you a little picture to put in your mind. It is very, very depressed at the front end, just north of $25, and then it steepens quite aggressively all the way out to 2030, approaching $50. And, Amrita, what's interesting about this curve is that if you ask many people in the oil market right now, why does it look like that? Give me one answer. They say demand and not supply. And I'm just wondering, Amrita, how much would have to be done on the supply side to account for the collapse that we've got in demand worldwide?
4: I think no amount of supply cuts which are organized or orchestrated can actually take care of the demand losses. This is why our view has been the market is going to force shut-ins, which means demand collapses, say, 25 million barrels per day in April. You run out of storage sometime in May. Prices have to collapse to the point where you are shutting in production. Of whatever that magnitude is, say 10 million barrels per day. Um, this has to be market driven. And I know OPEC and uh, OPEC Plus, rather, and US are talking about production curtailment. These curtailments would have happened regardless because the market simply cannot absorb all this crude.
2: Well, and this goes to exactly the social media intervention that President Trump staged yesterday, which seemed to be somewhat effective in boosting oil prices, at least temporarily when he tweeted out uh, that there were discussions between Saudi Arabia and Russia of cutting 10 million barrels. He didn't specify a time frame. People took it per day, which would agree, which would amount to about 10% of the world's <laughs> oil production. We are hearing about a virtual meeting on Monday uh, with OPEC plus and perhaps the United States. How likely is it, Amrita, that the United States is going to also agree to some production cuts, which I don't believe is precedented.
4: Well, I don't think the U.S. can um, join what it calls a cartel. It it just goes against everything the U.S. has said and stands for for the past decades about oil market. Uh, The reality is that, of course, there's a lot of focus on tax and jobs, and this is an election year. And I think... uh, there is a realization that actually low oil prices does hurt the U.S. economy. Uh, but this is so messy. How can, I mean, at best, you're going to get some kind of um, an agreement, a um, gentleman's agreement, rather, where there'll be some form of, okay, yes, Texas has said it's going to cut by X. But again, how do you devise that mechanism? If Texas cuts, what's, what about North Dakota? What about Oklahoma? And Russia and Saudi Arabia, both, but particularly Russia, has said U.S. has to join the cuts yeah. if we are to cut.
0: Okay, well, that makes sense, I guess. What's the likelihood of that? How, what? What is the process for the United States to join them in production cuts?
4: Look, I think what we're going to get, lots of positive headlines because this is political now. Uh, it's a lot of window dressing. That's the word I'm going to use because U.S. production is falling anyways. Because of low oil prices. And they will just codify those losses somehow through capex cuts and whatever else and say, oh, look, you know, production is falling by X. And that's how they're going to massage these numbers to get to that 10 million barrels per day they're talking about. The reality is, this is exactly what the market is and was going to force them to do anyway. So these aren't real cuts to yeah.
5: balance the market. And Rita, just a quick final question for me, just to help us all navigate this situation. We keep hearing from the Texas Railroad Commissioner, and when people hear from him, they're wondering what this means and what kind of power the Texas Railroad Commissioner has on oil output in America. Can you give us some clarity there?
4: Well, I know he is quite pro these cuts, but there are plenty who are against it. Uh, there were senior officials uh, from the Trump administration who came out yesterday. There was Exxon who came out yesterday and said, we don't want a government intervention by no means this is a done deal. Yes, there are some who are for rationing production and it's been done once in Texas in 1970, uh, but this isn't a coherent thought-through
0: process at all at this stage.
5: Amrita Sen of Energy Aspects, the chief oil analyst weighing in on this peculiar situation.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.